Well, it's no, no big secret that I love the band NRBQ. After the Beach Boys, they are the world's greatest band ever to come from the United States of America. Their whole catalog has gems all the way through for 50 years now. Uh, so when this new re-release of their first album came along, I thought it'd be good to sort of dig a little deeper and try to find some of the members of the band that I hadn't interviewed before. Uh Frank Gadler, the former singer of the band, he's just on the first couple records. I found through a lot of help, friend of a friend type of thing, I found his phone number and an email address and did leave him a voicemail and an email. And he did return the email saying he was interested, but he never then got in touch again to uh, cement it down. So hopefully I'll talk to Frank Gadler in a future program. But I did get in touch with Tom Staley, the drummer of the band. And with Don Adams, trombone player in the Whole Wheat Horns. And we're going to hear from Don Adams first, and then we'll hear from Tom Staley. Uh, these interviews definitely concentrate on the earliest days of the band. Uh, so if you're interested in a broader picture, check the archives at wfmu.org slash Michael, where you'll find interviews with Casey and with uh, Scott, who are in the band now, and John, the drummer of the band now, but also with Terry and Joey and Johnny who have been in the band. So, you, you know, listen to all of those. And some of those guys have been on the show more than once, and you'll certainly get the full history of NRBQ through interviews. Uh, and, of course, as always, all the interviews and podcasts, wfmu.org slash Michael. You can hear the whole programs with all the songs and stuff. And uh, that's it. So, once again, Don Adams. And, by the way, I'm going to see NRBQ tonight, just as a coincidence. Don Adams, then Tom Staley. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know. Thanks. Talk soon. All right. Long time trombonist with NRBQ, uh, sometime manager of the band, and a guy who was there when it all went down. We're talking about uh, the very first uh, record being reissued, and none other than uh, Don Adams, just the sixth member, maybe, of NRBQ. Welcome to WFMU. How are you? Well, I'm fine. It's good to be on here. Like I was saying, FMU is the first station we listened to when we moved up in, uh, well, where were we? <laughs> we were in Jersey, actually. We moved uh, to, uh, let's see, a town where the, the, the Rascals started playing on top. The Choo Choo was the name of the club, as a matter of fact. So a bunch of guys from NRBQ moved up from, from Florida, I believe, and lived over the Choo Choo Club. How did you, I mean, was that just a small music business world thing, like bands just stayed over the Choo Choo Club? Well, I, I don't know how it came about, except our manager, Frankie Scamaro, who was from Jersey. So he had connections, you know, friends, that uh, uh, enabled him to find a place for us to live, because it was quite a thing to do. Well, you know, he had a mob of people, girlfriends, dogs, cats, and we moved up from Florida, and he found us a spot there on top of that club. It was called the Choo Choo because it was right next to the train. <laughs> and uh, what's the name of that town where the Choo Choo is? I think it's in Garfield. Does that sound right? It is Garfield. It is Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. Garfield. So am I right that you were born in Louisville, Kentucky? Me, I was actually born in Eastern Kentucky, but grew up in Louisville. And are you uh, Terry Adams' older brother, younger brother? I try to tell everybody I'm his younger brother, but it's not true. I'm older than he is. <laughs> what happened in your childhood that made NRBQ happen? You know what I mean? What in you, the way your parents raised you, raised you guys to start a band like this? Well, I don't know. Somehow we've always been eclectic like that. Uh, about our musical taste, uh, we just, uh, Terry and I started listening to the radio when we were young, so that was when rock and roll was busting loose, you know, like, we went, Terry went nuts, and I did too, over Searching by the Coasters, a couple of records like that that came out that we just uh, flipped out over, and Elvis was hitting, you know, starting to be real huge, and it had to be 57, 58. You know, when I was about 14, 15. My older brother is a guy who sort of passed down records to me and, you know, was a central figure in uh, setting my musical taste. Is the same in your family? Yeah, uh, I had a cousin five years older than me, and uh, he was already rocking and rolling, you know, when I was uh, adolescent. So I'd, I'd go over to his house and listen to 45 
like he had those records. He had uh, uh, Heartbreak Hotel and Searching and and this and that and the other. So our taste started getting formed about that time. So that we were listening to all kinds of music even then. Because my first job as a musician was with a big band. It was a fifteen piece uh, dance band. You know. Uh, because big bands had previously been the thing, you know, uh, generations before us, big bands had been popular. And so uh, I listened to big band music and thought rock and roll was kind of silly and trivial until he grabbed me. <laughs> and uh, so Terry grew up listening to Stan Kenton and uh, big bands like that, Woody Herman and so forth. And then all of a sudden we had... Uh, thrown in some 45s by Elvis and Little Richard and so forth. So already we were listening to all kinds of stuff. So you were uh, playing the trombone in a big band, is that right? Right. When I was 16, I got hired to play in that band. Uh, played second trombone with the Stardusters, is the name of the band. And they were kind of popular in Louisville. We played like proms and formal dances at country clubs and stuff. And, uh, we only made about $3 a piece because we were 15 guys in the band. <laughs> <laughs> but then Terry actually played in that band a couple of gigs. He was starting to learn piano about the time I left the band and started doing other things. He played a couple of gigs with the big band himself, and uh, he was starting to play jazz, and he discovered Thelonious uh, Monk about that time. So he's never been the same since Jerry Lee Lewis and Thelonious Monk <laughs> and he was a piano player, so he never got over it. So Terry gets involved. Uh, we've talked about this on this program a, f a few different times, how NRBQ formed. And uh, basically, the, the band came together eventually after a bunch of uh, changes in Florida. How, now did, were you down there that whole time, or did they call you down there? Or, or when did you get involved? Well, I went down to see them. I went to the University of Louisville and... Uh, they kept letting me stay in college, so I stayed there for a while because going to school is a real good job if you can get away with it, you know? <laughs> sure. And uh, uh, I moved down there after I tried working for Boeing Aircraft for a year and hated working for a corporation. So it was like not what I had hoped the job would be. I thought I'd get to play in a lab and be a scientists, but instead, you know, you know what it's like. You had a project that was related to the job. And anyway, so I was kind of disgruntled, and I went down to Florida. By that time, NRBQ was NRBQ. Uh, it had changed from seven of us, and they had started working a little bit and then got visited by, as I said, that manager from Jersey, Frank Scamaro, and he wanted to bring the band to New York and try for a recording contract. So that's kind of in a nutshell what happened. I got down there at the tail end of it. And uh, as soon as I moved to Florida, we moved to New York. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, so tell me, the band has such a reputation as being a um, a no holds barred, you know, no rules. Was Was this attitude, was this way of approaching being in a band was that something that was articulated was it something that that was you know you sat around the breakfast talking about it or was it just something that just kind of happened well Terry and I uh, always thought that we'd like to have a band that had no rules and playing anything we liked because as we previously discussed we liked all kinds of music so we didn't think you should be held to uh, just one genre or whatever you want to call it. We always liked to, to listen to different things. Why not play different things? So from the beginning, that was the attitude that anything somebody liked that the band liked, we would play. Mm. And so was that, I mean, you're, here you guys are in you know, your early 20s and you're trying to make a living and play, get some gigs. Were those two, uh, the idea of trying to make a living and play all kinds of music, was that, and, and I guess therefore, uh, you know, being different than most bands and challenging the audience in a way, did, did that, was that a problem for you guys or did audiences just eat that up? Well, uh, we had always had ardent fans people who went on the various musical excursions with the band, you know. But 
like you said, some people didn't like that. They thought you ought to just either play rock and roll strictly all night and uh, didn't want to hear it. There were always, you know, we had some few problems, like people didn't get it. And uh, the only thing was, when a promoter didn't get it, <laughs> we didn't get hired. But... Uh, <laughs> For the most part, for the most part, we just, the fan base grew. Good. So people were sort of getting the message. So, hey, did you watch the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? Yes. Wild Horses or whatever couldn't have dragged me away from that mess. I, we all were, you know, like religiously tuned to them. And then the Stones became a big thing, too. So you guys moved to New Jersey and you're living above the Choo Choo Club. A bunch of young guys together in New York City. I, I, I don't, I can't imagine what was the work ethic. I mean, were you guys playing music, you know, when you weren't playing music? Were you partying? Were you staying up all night? Were you, what were you doing? What was the lifestyle of, of, of at that time? Well, it was all, it, it was all musical. I mean, because Terry always had a keyboard set up and Steve, Ferguson, uh, uh, you know, like was never far from a guitar. So anytime idle time was always spent, guys, uh, eventually what turned out to be writing songs, you know, everybody was always playing all the time. And uh, even after we moved away from Jersey, moved to upstate New York, uh, there was always a band set up, you know, the equipment was always set up and everybody was always playing. So, there wasn't much time for partying other than related to that. You know, we didn't socialize much. We just, uh, we were self-contained. In other words, the band was always together and always playing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the when when I listen to the record, that's the the feeling I get is just about a, a bunch of guys that are almost a family, you know, that it's just a one, that it's one thing, you know, it's like a, a being with, with five or six heads that just emits this music. <laughs> uh, so tell me, when you when you get down to Greenwich Village, 1968, uh, what's the scene like there? What is the, what were the clubs like there? What were the gigs like there? How are, How is it different than playing in Florida? Well, all of a sudden we were where it was happening. The club of the, uh, at the time was called the Scene. Steve Paul, Steve Paul was the uh, owner manager of that. He he left his club to, to manage Johnny Winter. <laughs> but anyway, neither here nor just, just another little factoid there. But anyway, that place was happening. I mean, anytime we played there or went there to see somebody, Hendrix guys from Led Zeppelin, The Who, and all that kind of stuff were in the crowd just hanging out. That's where everybody went, was the scene. It was the scene, literally. And everybody was always mingling around there, and you could hear and meet anybody. You know, I, I eventually uh, sat down and talked to Jimi Hendrix one night there. He'd come to see the band. In fact, he, he'd been coming for quite a while to see the band. He liked Steve's playing. So... Guys like that would just come and were fans of the band. And was the feeling that record companies started coming around? I mean, was that a an obvious thing that was happening? Were you guys aware of that? Guys like Clive Davis, he came down and heard the band. And Frank, the manager, was always trying to get record people to come down. And eventually we got to deal with Columbia. You know, and I don't know any details about the business end of it because we didn't care. We didn't pay any attention to anything except playing at that time. So, but it was nice to know that we had been appreciated. Sure. Uh, so, so when you started to make the record, what was the mood like in the, in the recording studio? Well, it was, we were all excited. We were so excited to finally get to lay some of this down that had been built up for a long time. You know, it's like... Uh, been a lot of foreplay, <laughs> let me say that, until finally we got down to making the album. Everybody was really excited about going in the studio. And the first album is the only album, I think, maybe the second too, where everybody was around for the entire thing. I mean, nowadays, if I'm on a record, it's uh, I get, get a phone call and I go in and play my part. But... The uh, first album was all a community thing. Everybody was there for everything, listening to everything, commenting on everything. It was entirely a group effort. 
Yeah. Uh, am I right that this is just uh, that you remember this like yesterday? Yeah. It's, uh, in fact, listening to the reissue of the first album uh, brought me to tears because I found myself back there in sitting in the studio with everybody the way it was and the, how close we were. And we were indeed like a family. Everybody loved everybody. And, uh, you know, those kind of things are, are rare when you get that situation where you're so close, you know, both living, musically, you know, our job, everything was all one thing. And it was uh, really a wonderful time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds absolutely beautiful. And you're right, those times in life are rare and they are to be savored uh, for sure. Uh, we're talking to Don Adams, uh, a sort of a... An extra member of NRBQ, longtime trombonist, and I believe you were a manager of the band for a short while, and of course, brother of Terry Adams, keyboard player of the band. And uh, we're talking about the reissue of uh, All Day Today uh, of NRBQ's debut album. First came out in 1969, which means it was recorded just about exactly 50 years ago now. In the liner notes of the record, uh, you, Don, say that uh, NRBQ is a way of life. Is that right? Yeah, I did. You know, I had a lot of passion for for our philosophy and uh, and the way we were at that time. And uh, I'm in it. <laughs> you know, the whole thing of, uh, well, really, if you start thinking about liking all kinds of music, it, you know, it, it melds into acceptance of others and tolerance of others and so forth. I mean, it was like a philosophy, too. That, you know, we just loved all kinds of things and uh, hope that was the message that got out, too. You know, there was a lot of peace, love stuff going on in 68 anyway, but we were right there in it and believed it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I can. I mean, I think that comes through in, in the record and... Uh... And like you said, the whole package uh, of just being one thing together. Uh, so, what were the band's expectations? That you know, were they did they think they were going to have a huge hit on their hands, or what? What do you think when they were listening to the playback of this record? What What do you think they thought would happen? Well, we always thought that uh, if exposed, our music would be really, really popular. You always think that the the last thing you recorded is going to be a hit. And, of course, we expected it to be a tremendous hit. And it, although it got some good reviews, you know that it wasn't. It didn't go to number one or anything. It just went, it just went you know, like it was out. But we were happy to just have a record out. You know, that was, it was a, it kind of validated everything that we, we had a vinyl, piece of vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so am I right that the band who had been cutting their chops live, uh, like you said, and were kind of, you know, busting to 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 put this, to record this, that they just kind of went into the studio and set up and Eddie Kramer recorded it, and there's not really too much to the recording besides just that? Right. You mean there wasn't a lot of production or overdubs? That's right, yeah. True. That, yeah. True. It, it was pretty much straight through, you know, and uh, everybody had been playing these things and feeling them for so long that there weren't many takes. You know, things uh, things went down real well. So sitting there listening, uh, I, like you said, casting your memory back to 50 years ago, do you remember the first time you guys heard it coming through the big speakers in the record plant? And were you guys happy with the results at at the time? Yes, but to be honest with you, we would have been happy just to hear something of ours come out speakers. <laughs> but but we were thrilled. We were thrilled, really, to get a record out. And we thought it was a good record. And the thing is, with the reissue, it sounds so much better because it was remastered with more uh, thought going into the final sound. Because at the time, we were in such a hurry to get something out that it doesn't sound as good as it does now when, when you pay like my attention to things. Terry went back in on this reissue and enhanced everything uh, as far as you can. You can't remix, but you can change the way the record sounds, and it sounds so much better. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I've got the original vinyl, and I've got the new CD, and the CD really does sound great. And it really made me sit up and kind of listen to the record and sort of take it all in in a different way. And, and it's it kind of is amazing how timeless the record sounds, because there's not a lot of... Uh, special effects or you know like we said it's mostly a live record so there's nothing to kind of make it sound dated you know it sounds real fresh this 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 new reissue yes i i guess the word's present it has a greater presence so over the years nrbq i mean you know the band has changed uh and continues to change and people come in and out and uh I don't know, the times change, everything changes, uh, but for 50 years, this has been a band. Uh, and a lot of people, this is a lot of people's absolutely favorite band. I mean, this is, you know, this is, you know, besides the Beatles, maybe the Beach Boys, this is my favorite band. What, do you have any, what's the clue? What's the secret of why people love this band? Well, you know, I wonder, unless they have the same kind of mindset that, that the musicians do in that they really like to listen to music. I mean, you have to be a music lover or listener to really appreciate NRBQ. You know, it's, uh, uh, you may like a song just to dance to it or something, but to be a fan, you like to listen to music. Yeah, so if you like music, you like NRBQ. I mean, it sounds like a simple formula, but uh, the world is more compl- complicated than that. So, uh, Don Adams, what do you do now? Are you st- you're still playing... I'm still playing. I, uh, I'm in Louisville, moved back home, and I play with a band here called Another Mule. And uh, They used to open for NRBQ a lot when we came in town, and when they were on the road about the 70s, they were very popular here in, in the colleges and so forth. But anyway, I play with those guys now, so it's kind of like I didn't go very far. <laughs> I'm right back where I started. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I want to hear You Can't Hide uh, from this uh, NRBQ debut record, which has just been, like we said, just been re-released for the first time ever. Uh, it's funny, it had to wait 49 years to get uh, a re-release. Uh, it originally came out in Columbia, now it's out on Omnivar, comes out uh, March 16th. Um, do, do you have one more story about anything you can remember just about, you know, putting us there, what it was like to make this record? Well, like I said before, and it was the one time when I think everybody was sitting in the floor listening and, and involved in everything. And uh, we just had a great time. We were uh, commuting from wherever we lived at the time, like upstate, and everybody would be in the car going together to to the studio and then together in the studio. We were already wrapped up in a ball. It was like that. My whole thing of the first album is just everybody being around. That's my one memory of that, is that everybody was there all the time. You know, we ate pizza together. We listened to the playbacks together and so forth. Uh, it was just one good time. Yeah. Well, Don, I just want to say thank you for uh, helping sort of paint that picture for all of us, uh, this band we love. Oh, and you're welcome. This is the record that sort of started you're welcome. off. Just everybody's favorite band, NRBQ. Don Adams, thanks a million. Good talking to you, man. All right, there is NRBQ. We've been talking about this debut album, which has just been reissued, and the drummer from those days of NRBQ, Tom Staley, joins us. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Good morning. Hey, Michael. I'm doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you. I always think about the early days of NRBQ, and Florida, the state of Florida, is always aligned with that sort of the band sort of getting together. Is that where you grew up? I was born in Hollywood, Florida, and um, I'm, I'm adopted. So it wasn't, but just a month or so, I think, before my parents took me to Fort Lauderdale. So I grew up there. And always playing drums or always playing music? Uh, I started when I was around 10. Uh, I had a next door neighbor who was interested in drumming. He was a couple years older than I am. And he used to bring his sticks over and his pad and stuff like that. And I was like, ah, this this looks pretty cool. (laughs) I think I'm going to try this. And it wasn't long before I was into it pretty heavy. Were your folks okay with that? Well, at first, um, after they realized that I was going to destroy all the furniture, 
<laughs> they they decided maybe we better get him something to play on, and they got me a toy drum set, and that was gone in one day. So then we moved on to a snare drum. So at that point, it was just, uh, can we take him playing all this all this time in the house? <laughs> it's like you have certain times you can play, and then from then on, it was all free. I just played whenever I wanted to. So I guess they just, they discovered that, you know, we're going to give him lessons and he must be serious about it. So. And were you listening to the radio? Were you buying records? Were you taking lessons? I mean, who, who influenced you? Pretty much marching drums at first. Um, and then, I don't know, I, I bought a couple pop albums, I think. It had something to do with Hawaiian music or something. I think I bought it because the cover was provocative. <laughs> to yeah. tell you the truth but it was mostly marching drums and then I, I was in a drum and bugle course so i had the rudiment thing down pretty well and uh, that really helped me out helped me a lot later on yeah so i assume you were in high school bands is that right i was in the the high school band i was in uh let's see 10th grade and 11th grade i was in the band but i also played football so there was um there there was there was quite a bit of conflict there and i guess the point where i was disinterested in the band because she, the band leader was so old school. And a lot of bands around the area were picking up on, you know, pop music and James Brown stuff. And it was like, I don't want to be in this band. It's too square. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did you join a cover so band? I, well, I, I did everything I could to get myself thrown out. And then I did get thrown out. And I, was, I sat in the, the study hall, which was the only air-conditioned place in the whole school. And this was South Florida. So I would sit in there and just go, oh, this is great. So, yeah, cover bands. Uh, let's see. The, my first band was when I was 13, and we managed to play uh, at a place called the War Memorial Auditorium, where a lot of big acts came through. We were billed as the youngest rock and roll band ever to play there. So that was quite an eye-opening experience for me. Were you guys opening uh, for a bigger band? No, we just kind of were, you know, a special deal that they had put together you know, the youngest, youngest guys. And of course, um, we had to kind of be with our parents around there because it was, it wasn't really accepted, you know? So yeah, it was fun. I learned a lot. That's the first night I realized that you need to tie your bass drum to your seat, which is what this other guy did. Otherwise it's going to scoot all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's why there's cinder blocks, I guess, you know? Yeah. I thought, okay, professionals. Now I know what's happening here. You know? Yeah, they get that rug or whatever. Uh, so there's a band called the Mersey Beach USA, and there's another band called the Seven of Us, and those bands kind of get together and eventually draft you as the drummer, and that band becomes NRBQ. Is that sort of the right chronology? Yeah, let's see. The Terry assembled it all in his bedroom and then found Steve. Then they tried to go to Florida twice. The second time, they got together with Joey and Frankie, who they had already met. and. Uh, tried to, to make it happen then. I still wasn't involved. And then uh, I think Terry was asked to join the seven of us, and he actually went to New York, and that's where he met Monk. I may be wrong on all that, but he actually played with the seven of us up there, and then he came to Florida with them, and then eventually Steve joined the band, who he, he brought down from Louisville. So how did they find you? Where did you come up on the radar? Well, I I did like a half a semester in college and decided to go out west with the band I'd been playing with to try to make it. So we went to Kansas City for a couple months, which was a real eye-opening experience for me. And then came back and I heard from the guitar player that was with me at that time that a band called NRBQ, which used to be kind of the seven of us, was, was looking for drummers. So I sought out and went down to the image where they were playing and, and introduced myself and said, I'd like to audition. And at that time, Joe Lala was subbing for their drummer, which they really didn't have, a permanent drummer. Joe Lala, the percussionist, who was with the Blues Image. So had you seen the seven of us? Were you familiar with them? Oh, yeah. Well, my band used to share the same bill with them at a place called The World. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. First, first time seeing Gadler, you know, and Terry. Sucking my mind. <laughs> These guys are doing something pretty good. Ah, yeah. so, I mean, tell me about, you, you, you say, the image of the world. It sounds like there is kind of like a happening. This would be, you know, the post-Beatles, you know, mid to late 60s. What was the scene like? Was it just, were there tons of clubs? Were kids always just going out every night? Yeah, they called them nightclubs for teenagers. So it was like, this one place was a, uh, a converted uh, hangar 
I believe. It was horrible. The acoustics were horrible. <laughs> but it was called called The World. It was huge. And then there was a couple other places around town. I think The Happening was actually one of them. And then uh, the, the, um, uh, the Image, which is where we played on, on Miami Beach. We moved around to a couple places. And these places always packed with kids? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. You know, back then, you, you could play the weekend, you know, and, and make enough money to, uh, you know, for me as a teenager, right, to, to be able to satisfy my whims. So it was great fun, you know, and uh, kind of flirted with, you know, becoming a big star in the back of our minds. You know, everybody did. And, uh, you know, it just it just kind of fell into place. You know, I think the whole NRBQ experience for me was, was pretty much just a script that had been written and I was following it. That's the way I felt the whole time. You know, it was just the destiny thing. You know, I just it just fell into place. Yeah, I think a lot. I mean, I've heard that ex- almost exact same um, quote from guys who are in the band now. You know, it's funny how it just there's a something about this band. So, what year exactly did you join NRBQ? Well, it was in summer of '68. Um, it was in August, I believe. And you mentioned that when you had seen the band, they were something to behold. What was, I mean, what was the set like? And then what was it like to be, you know, playing the drums in that band? And then, and, and I'm guessing that when you joined, it really came together. Well, it seemed, yeah, they, they were satisfied with me and it kind of started to gel and, you know, it felt pretty cool. But, you know, I'd seen the band, I think, twice. You know, I'd never heard Rocket Number no. 9 before. That was interesting. And then um, they used to do... Uh, I forget who did this. I need your loving. I need your loving. I have really. I can't remember who did that. But anyway, with with the organ, because Terry played organ a lot then. Didn't this was before the clavinet, and it just it just was incredible. You know, the harmonies were great, and it just it just like wow. I got I got to join this band. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it was quite an experience watching Frankie, you know, dance too, because I hadn't seen him since the seven of us. And they had this big stage at this place called the World. It was about 15 feet high. I mean, if you fell off, we're, we're talking about some serious injury, you know. And he used to dangle at the end of the stage and pretend like he was falling off. And it was like, wow, <laughs> I've never seen anybody do anything like this before. Uh, so people talk about the musicality of NRBQ, and it's very un- it's a very unusual band compared to most rock bands. Was was there rules, you know, was it something that was defined? Was it something that you guys had, a, you know, I'm imagining a meeting where you sit around and say, okay, here's, here's what we'll do, here's what we won't do, or was it just, did it just happen? Yeah, it was just happening. It was more organic than anything else. The, the songs just appeared, you know. I know I know this sounds like it really was magical, but it, it was, you know, it really was magical. But there, the, the only rule was that there was no rules. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's like whatever, you know, you know, and, and, and the first take attitude too, you know, in the studio. So it was like a jazz approach. If you can't say it in one take, then, it's, you know, what's the use, you know? Hmm. I mean, it's interesting to me. It's a very interesting time in music, 68, 69, because the Beatles come to America in 64 and it, it really changes everything. But 1968 is only four years later, but things have changed so much. I mean, were you, did you feel swept up in that change? Uh, you know, there was, yeah, there was, there was that definitely that movement going on, you know, in the United States, you know, with the protests against the war and everything, everything was really alive, you know? Um, so getting swept up into it was just getting into NRBQ basically. Um, the music fads and all that kind of faded away because we just wanted to do something that was pure. So all the wah-wah pedals and all the psychedelic stuff, which I had kind of been into, disappeared when I joined the band. Alive, that's a, such a great word. So the, the yeah. band... Yeah, it's perfect. So the band moves to New York City. Now, I mean, to me, that's... That is an ambitious move. Was the band ambitious? I mean, because that... It's hard to imagine these guys who wanted to only play by their own rules of no rules, you know, had ambition. But I imagine you were somewhat ambitious, yes? Well, I wouldn't call it ambition. I think it was, we were we were compelled to call, to almost change the world. You know what I mean? That we just felt so strongly about what we did. And that because our opinion of the music that existed at the time was, it was pretty dark. And we wanted to just bring something 
bright and colorful and and alive, you know, full of joy and bliss. That's really what I was trying to say. The band had a lot of joy in it. So, you know, that wasn't really what was going on. It was like dark blues, you know, at the time or something. And were audiences reacting the way you wanted them to? I mean, were they blown away by you guys? <laughs> I mean, you know, at the scene, uh, when we, we, when we, right when we got our contract, we played for, I think, a week and a half at the scene or five nights or something like that. And the audiences started really coming in strong. I mean, just wanting to know and following the band. And, and that's when Hendrix, you know, discovered NRBQ and used to come in and watch Steve all the time, you know, which was looked pretty wild. Cause I coming from a few years before that, you know, I was really into Jimmy for a while, you know, in the, in the Mitch Mitchell thing, which he was just an incredible drummer. And, and all of a sudden here's Jimmy hanging out, watching us. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is pretty cool. I like this. <laughs> yeah. Not so bad. So yeah. So you guys signed with Columbia Records, which to me at, at that time is still a pretty square sort of label. Uh, did a lot of labels want to sign the band? And um, what do you think that they were expecting from you? Or did they even understand what they had? Or, or was it just a, a race to sort of cash in on this kind of heat that they felt? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't um, into that side of dealing with them to knowing exactly what their, their agenda was or anything. But we thought it was pretty cool to be on the same label as the birds, you know. I don't know about other labels. I really can't answer that question. Hmm. Uh, but Columbia uh, jumped on it, were, definitely. Were there Columbia folks hanging around you guys? Well, Clive Davis came down to introduce himself, actually, one night at the scene. I remember meeting him. So, you know, it was, it was all like a whirlwind for me. You know, with moving to New York, it was all a big lifestyle change, and I was just kind of holding on. <laughs> just just holding on really. right i heard that you guys lived above the choo-choo club which is here in new jersey famous uh club uh i i mean i'm imagining this kind of like 60s style uh you know beetles all in you know falling out of a room and uh uh i mean were you guys partiers were you uh, what was the lifestyle like for you know this communal living thing well you know we were pretty tightly knit and uh, Steve and, and Terry and myself lived up there. And then the, Joey and Frankie lived at home. So, yeah, it was, it was a flop house. It was pretty wild. There were some people, other people that lived upstairs, too. We used to see occasionally. You know, and the bathroom was down the, down the hallway. You had to share it, you know. So, yeah, it was extreme <laughs> lifestyle change. I remember looking out the bedroom window that I had, and then you could almost touch the brick wall of the next building. So... So we went from Florida and, you know, beautiful sunlight and every tropical to this building in Passaic, New Jersey. <laughs> so it was it was an abrupt change, definitely. So you're signed to Columbia Records, huge major label, uh, and they and you've only been in the band a relatively short while. And, the, and you start to record the uh, first album, which uh we mentioned has just been re-released and it's hard to believe for the first time ever on CD. So the, uh, Eddie Kramer who worked with Hendrix is the engineer and, uh, the credits I believe are that's produced by Andrew BQ and Frank Sinlaro. Who's Frank Sinlaro? Frank Skinlaro. Skinlaro. He was our man. He was our manager. And did he in fact produce the record? Um, I would say so. Yeah. Him and, you know, we all had our hand in it, but you know, but Frank was there was helping. Produced, yeah. yeah, helping out, yeah. And Eddie Kramer, was he uh, – I remember I, I met him once, and uh, he – and I mentioned you guys to him, and he his face lit up. It seemed like a totally happy memories for him working with NRBQ. Is that what how you see it? Oh, yeah. We had a great time. It was, it was really fun recording that, that album, just hanging out with him in the studio, and it was, it was just, just sheer joy, you know. Hmm. I recorded the record plan in New York City. Is that right? Yeah, uh, on 12 tracks. On 12 tracks. Wow, 12-track record. Yeah. So how long did it take to make this album? didn't take very long at all. I think in a matter of uh, like a week or two, we cut a bunch of tracks and then went back and you know did the vocals and added any instruments that we thought would go on there. Hmm. Well, that's it was pretty fast. Yeah, so, so it's not 100% live. There are some overdubs? Well, the vocals 
or overdubs in, in the solos. Um, but yeah, I think, I think all the solos were overdubbed. I'm not sure. I remember when Steve did uh, Get Down Your Rock and Roll Shoes solo. He used to use a magnetone amp. Actually, I think it was a preamp through a Fender. So he could get that Lonnie Mac tremolo thing happening. Right. And it's, it started to buzz and make a lot of noise. In fact, you can hear it on Ludlow's. It's, it's really pretty noisy. So they went and got another amplifier, another magnetone. I don't know where it came from, but all of a sudden it just appeared. And it had the name Dwayne Eddy stuck in a little plastic name tag right on the, right on the head. And nobody could tell us, like, well, why does this say Dwayne Eddy? You know? huh. I don't know if Dwayne used it or what, or, you know, whatever. But that's, that's the amp that he used on Get Down Your Rock and Roll Shoes which is an incredible solo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I love the whole album. It's great, and it really is a really... uh, There's a lot going on in terms of different styles and uh, cover songs and songs that you guys wrote, and, you know, it's it's all over the map, and I can see why uh, some people loved it and why it sort of scared some people away. You know, it doesn't sound like a Gary Lewis and the Playboys album, or I don't don't know what... (laughs) You know, what... uh, Do you remember how it was... I mean, what were the reviews originally? Was the record company happy when you guys turned it in? Well, I know Rolling Stone destroyed it. I forget this guy's name now. <laughs> but, yeah, it wasn't a good review. Let's just put it that way. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to see if I can find the original Rolling Stone uh, review, and I'm curious I'm curious if they've changed their tune on it. I think a lot of people have sort of changed their tune on this record, maybe people who didn't understand it uh, originally, because one of the things... Be- because it doesn't have so much wah wah or you know uh, phasing or there's not a lot of 1968-69 sounding effects on it, it sounds very classic. You know, this it's a very timeless sounding record in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, um, you know, it, this, there's just been no uh, end to Terry's vision. I just want to say it. You know, it's probably that's what it is. It's just he wanted to have a band that could play anything. And we were just light years ahead of everybody else. You mentioned Terry Adams and his uh, his vision, his influence. Tell me just you know a paragraph or two about each of the other guys. It's such an interesting band because you're from Florida, and there's a couple guys from Louisville, a couple guys from New York City, from the Bronx, uh, and you come together. Uh, you, you mentioned Terry. Tell me what Steve uh, brought to the band besides amazing guitar playing and songwriting and singing. I don't know the warmth of his soul. This, which comes to mind right right away, which was a big part of uh, the feeling of the band. And then, of course, Joey and Frankie were you know street corner singers, and they brought that doo wop thing. So that was a, that was a cool part right there, you know, the, the emphasis on the vocals. And then, of course, Terry was coming from Monk, and you know uh, that's that Sun Ra and avant garde scene. So it was just a mix of the whole thing falling in together and stirring the pot. You couple that with the times that were happening, you know, and uh, it was just a lot of energy all directed in this one place. Let me remind folks that uh, Tom Staley is our guest, and we're talking about NRBQ's 1969 debut album, which has been reissued for the first time on the Omnivore label, 49 years old. It's sort of hard to believe that this this record never, ever has been reissued since it originally came out on Columbia 49 years ago, and now it's out on vinyl and CD. Did you get the reissue? What do you think about it? What do you think when you hold it in your oh, hand? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've been immersing myself in it for about five days now. Uh, it, what can I say? It just sounds absolutely beautiful. It's so clear. The remastering of, of it has uh, put it in a place where, you know, there was actually instruments that I'd forgotten were there. Ah. So when I was listening to it, I went, whoa, I haven't heard this in so long. This is so good to hear. It was like I could really come at it from a fresh viewpoint. Do you, I mean, do you, you know, have, do you listen, have you listened to that record, you know, in the past 10 years? I mean, is it something that you keep up with? Honestly, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got five copies sitting over here. I actually got a copy that has out of phase instruments on it, which is pretty cool. I don't know. I just stumbled upon it. For instance, like when, when you're listening to the start of, of a Kentucky Slop song, the piano disappears and it's just Terry's voice by itself. Hmm. And a, an and old vinyl other, copy? Other, other instruments. Yeah, vinyl copy. Then I have a copy that has actually us on both sides, but one of the labels on the other side says Mike Bloomfield Band. 
<laughs> so, so they 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 made a mistake and you know punched out the wrong label. Oh, that's funny. You might want to sell that on eBay, Tom. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple copies on vinyl. I'm going to have to check them. That's why I'm mentioning it. So maybe somebody can can be an offer. <laughs> the the uh, f- the cover photos are taken in a photo booth. Do you remember where that photo booth was? Well, I know the one I took was in a Woolworths, was in uh, Long Island, someplace. Oh, they weren't all taken in the same the same day, the same session. No, I don't think so. Oh, interesting. No. Yeah, you you mentioned that uh, they put you with Carl Perkins for the second album. I guess really not knowing what to do with you after the first album. So you made this record called Bop and the Blues, uh, nineteen seventy, with Carl Perkins. It's a fantastic record. I mean, I love the record all the way through. But it definitely you could hear. You know, if you take the Carl songs out, you could hear what the second NRBQ record might have sounded like. Although it sort of works as a whole thing. Although it is a little bit disjointed, I guess. But uh, I mean, what was he like? It's such a weird time for, um, you know, guys like Carl Perkins. I guess, I don't know if he was uncool at that point, but I guess there was a little bit of, uh, he was in a a down time, you know, for those guys hadn't sort of made their huge, they weren't seen as, you know, the the big saviors, you know, the the originators of rock and roll as they are now. So what was was he like to work with just in that time, 1970? He's the nicest guy in the world. (laughs) <laughs> that's all I can say. I mean, he was just so cordial and respectful. Um, it was pretty much how he sounds when you listen to him sing. That's the, the beingness that you pick up from him. The warm thing is is just how he is as a person. I got to tell you, you know, he, he had he had a guitar case sitting there with a wah-wah pedal in it. And I pointed it out. I said, Carl, you have a wah-wah pedal. He says, yeah, I don't know how to use the thing. But they said I should get it. <laughs> Was he happy so he, with your drumming? Because your drumming on that record's great. Yeah, he was. Uh, he actually mentioned me in an interview. He says, "In the drummer, he's just as fast or something like that as as a drummer I've ever seen." I think that's that was his only comment about me. You mentioned that Carl liked your fast drumming. I agree. That is something that is like a kind of a Tom Staley specialty. This kind of way to play a fast groove, but keep it kind of very groovy. And I, I'm not, I can't quite figure it out, but it's something to do with the way you you, th- you play the kick drum and throw it all in there. And I guess also the way you play with Joey, too. I mean, he's not a conventional bass player, and you guys have I mean, quite an interesting rhythm section. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean about gelling. We just kind of each other's styles you know yeah mine comes from a rudimental background and so i was i was a i am still even though joe's not with us anymore a huge joe morello fan he used to go to his clinics and i was really into the the technical aspect of drumming and playing it playing at odd time signatures you know the whole deal it's my schooling that's all play fast so after Carl Perkins' record, uh, you guys make Scraps, again, produced by Eddie Kramer. Uh, and then between that, I guess, and Workshop, the next record, these were both on Karma Sutra, right? Right. Frank Adler leaves. Why did Frank leave? Um, well, you know, um, band chemistry can get weird sometimes, all I can say, you know. Um, Al was coming into the band, so I don't really know, to tell you the truth the inside or anything like that. But I guess Frankie just felt like it was time. You know, the same thing happened to me when I had family. And that's why I left because the draw of the family was just horrible. After I had my son, I think I had to go away for two weeks and that really killed me, you know? Mm. So over the course of the next, I don't know, year or so, there was so much time away from, from him that eventually it just, the the draw of the family drew, drew me away from the band, you know? So, so I understand how things can, can move you and motivate you to, to do things. It's very hard. You're in a van three feet from a guy. You're on stage three feet from him. You're in a motel three feet from him. You know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's, you're never – you see these people more than your own family. So, yeah. So for you, you chose your family, which I don't think anybody uh, could, could uh, argue with. You know? and, I'm, and I'm sure you're – I assume you're happy with that choice, yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, you know – a lot of uh, water's gone into the bridge at this point. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, here I am. I, I'm just one year away from 70. And then, you know, I have, I have grandchildren that are grown and in college. So, you know, it's, it's all beautiful. Yeah, life is just who knows. There's no yeah. There's, yeah you just go. Uh, I mean, I love scraps. I love workshop. They are 
uh, just some amazing records, and you and the band is blossoming on those records. And you know, like you say, Al joins, and there's just some amazing, just great songs, great production, great stuff. Uh, they, those records weren't hits at all, uh, and kind of you know, NRBQ was uh, took a while before before they became these kind of legends. But uh, tell me, in the, in that early '70s period, I mean, what was the vibe in the band? Were you guys just marching forward, doing your mission? Well, there, there was a big uh, revitalization when when we did Scraps because Al was in the band and uh, things had changed around a little bit and there, it was like a new lease, you know, on life, so to speak. And we had a new place to live. We were in Mount Vision up there, upstate New York. And then a tour was put together and we went out for a couple months, you know, promoting Scraps. So that to me, well, that was the happiest period for me right in there and in, in my favorite album scraps yeah i love that album i just love it. it yeah it's just a joyful amazing uh wonderful record uh, i mean i assume uh, there's going to be more reissues coming and i assume all these records will will come out uh, again and hopefully you know with with extra bonuses and great art and stuff like that so there's a story and maybe you can i don't know if this is i've heard this story a million times variations uh the band was when you were still in the band they were playing an encore and you didn't come out for the encore and tom was in the audience Tom Ardolino and uh, Terry called Tom up and he started to play the drums with the band. Uh, and that's sort of the first time he played with NRBQ. Is that a true story? Yes, it is a true story. I was in the, in the uh, bus and I was ill and I just couldn't make it back. I forget what was going on. There's some kind of nauseous thing happening or whatever. Huh. And, and, and so uh, all of a sudden Ardolino just showed, but I, I was in the band, I was in the bus. So, I knew I couldn't make it. Gotcha. So you, you, so, you were Yeah. So obviously Terry called Arlena to step up and you know, it was a good thing. <laughs> I wasn't going to make it. I wasn't going to make it to the, to the, uh, to the encore. No wow. way. Okay. So we're, I mean, I think Tom Arlino, amazing drummer, uh, like you plays a, a real unique style and, you know, plays all styles. After you left, were you happy with Tom's, the way Tom handled the drum chair? You know, um, the band chemistry thing I talked about, of course, you know, when you're leaving and all that, you kind of get into, oh, I don't know about this guy, you know, <laughs> critical and all that. Okay. But, you know, that's, that's, that's all just, you know expected you know but no no i really liked the way tom played but it was it was different because it was so organic and i realized this cat's really got a, a nice balanced groove going on and he's he's really pushing the band in the right places you know yeah in the arrangements so yeah then then of course he grew over the years and i really appreciated watching him develop his own style which was totally different from the way i played it really was, but it worked. So that's yeah. what's so amazing that somebody who plays so differently still works so good in that band. It's kind of a, yeah, it's a real lesson just to, to watch the difference between you. I remember uh, you mentioned the um, NRBQ reunions. Was it the 35th reunion? Uh, 35th, yeah. And I remember when you were playing with the band, Tom was in the wings, uh, lying on his stomach with his. Um, his chin on his hand, you know, just watching you. You know, he was he wasn't watching the band; he was watching you. And I just thought, oh, that's great. You know, that's that's perfect. You know, uh, so in between the reunion and when you left the band, I mean, did you go see them if they played in Florida? Were you uh, did you buy their records? Did you know? Did they send you their records? Were you, did you keep in touch with the band? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, whenever they would come to South Florida, you know, if I wasn't gigging. I definitely try to make the show, and um, I did buy the records. <laughs> I know I I should have been sent the records, but no, it's like I wanted to have it, so yeah, I did buy it. You bought it. that's amazing, uh, yeah. and I, I know that you have play, you have spent your whole life playing music. It wasn't like you. Uh you know, became a plumber, right? I mean, you you seem to have played in many, many, many bands. Just you know, grinding it out every night somewhere is, I mean, is that what you I did? Yeah, I did until I, until the work fell apart and then I had to look for a day job. So eventually I ended up in stained glass, which I liked a whole lot and worked for about 12 years for a company doing stained glass. Huh? That sounds really, but still, but still playing though, still playing, you know, but, but having a day job, 
five five day a week day job just to cover the the mortgage. Yeah, it seems like you've never stopped playing. Uh, you've put out a couple of records. Folks can find. Uh, We're going to be okay. Uh, and one, uh, you, you've worked with this guy Rick Harper for years and years and years and years and years, right? Yeah, Rick's my soul brother. Yeah, um, when when Steve and I formed a band after I left NRBQ, we called Rick to play bass, and that's that's when my relationship started with Rick and. We've just been fast friends ever since. Yeah, so you and Steve Ferguson were going to sort of have a more of a Florida-based uh, band. Was that sort of the idea? Uh, I don't know about that, um, it, but that's where we went to to try to get the band together. And then we did a couple demos at Capricorn, which Frank Skinlero arranged for us. So there's a couple demos floating out there uh, of Steve's tunes. I'd love with to Frankie hear. singing. Really? Yeah. And what was the name of that band? Uh, actually, Steve was into this, a very Christian thing, and he, he wanted to call the band the Sacred Frowns. <laughs> the Sacred Frowns. <laughs> so, the Sacred Frowns. But, uh, it, it didn't really ever fly. I think we had a couple, a couple gigs, and, you know, that was it. So since NRBQ, you've been in a million bands, uh, you've played, you've moved your family, uh, I believe up to near Atlanta and then back to Florida and then back uh, to Georgia, uh, where I think you are now. Yeah. And are you still playing music? I mean, will you play music in the next week or so? I've been playing with a cover band and just, you know, subbing and stuff. This cover band I've been playing with is called the Alligator Hat Band. And uh, we play, I don't know, um, four gigs a month, three or four gigs a month. So um, that's that's kind of kept my hand in the whole deal. And I still play at home here. And get together with friends. So, yeah, yeah. Still doing it. And when's the last time you saw an NRBQ gig? Let's see. I think I went down to Tampa a couple of years back and went to Skipper's and sat in. That's been about three or four years ago. Oh, what fun. Yeah, I think the band yeah. now is still, I mean, it was kind of weird after Joey left uh, that the band came, that the band uh, started again but uh they're still an amazing amazing band i think they're better than ever to tell you the truth that's just my opinion for, for what it's worth isn't that amazing <laughs> uh, so this record is almost 50 years old the very first nrbq record and it's reissued just been reissued uh for the first time ever which is so strange the first time ever uh considering that nrbq is one of everybody's favorite bands it's weird that this record uh, had not been out uh do you have a favorite song on the record Oh, you're going to ask me that, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, I'd probably have to say Stomp. All right, let's hear Stomp uh, from NRBQ and Tom Staley. Tom, it's been so fascinating. Just, just, you know, I love this band, and I'm so curious just to hear about just what life was like, you know. And and it seems like, am I right that you're just left mostly overwhelmingly with positive memories? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you have to you have to get rid of you have to do a lot of forgiveness and get rid of all the regrets and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm totally cool at this point. I love the band and I can appreciate it from a whole different viewpoint than I never could before, which is beautiful. And I want to say thank you for supporting the band all these years too. You know, you've done a lot to get it to get the the music out there, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, I love the band. Uh, thank you. Let's hear Stomp. Okay. Everybody stomp, lay it on the ground, having lots of fun till the sun goes down. People got to know from miles and miles around about the hidden secret of the stomping zone. 